ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Team, quick safety brief, uh, got to be done. I'm Kane, that's Lily, if you need us, sing it. I'm sitting strapped into a 40-seater power boat. I've been given a ginger tablet to help keep the seasickness down and I'm getting full book on the safety briefing from Captain Kane. That's pretty much it, except I have to, by law, stay out of the air like that. We're headed out into the inhospitable ocean around Tasmania, where the sheer rocks at the water's edge are stripped clean of life by the power of the water that claws at the land, like it wants a piece. It's daunting out there. It is a complete sensory immersion, and it is like all your senses are at play, and to endure constant assault on your senses for so long with just the flat horizon, the grey sky, the inky water and nothing else. Out there with a solid boat underneath me and a warm cover just a half hour away, It only emphasises the stark reality of ten shipwrecked men completely alone and sardined in a life raft at the mercy of the wind and currents. The shipwrecked crew of the Blythe Star. It must have been bloody lonely. It is, because you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You're going in a general direction of south. And that's what we did talk about. Oh, shit, what are we going to do if we keep going in this direction? We're going to end up freezing. The wind didn't seem to be easing down at all in the general direction it was blowing us. We were going to uh, end up in Antarctic or somewhere. Lost, alone, as hope of rescue washed away. I'm Pia Worsu, and this is episode two, Lost at Sea. At 8.30 on Sunday, October 13th, 1973, the grey steel freight ship, the Blythe Star, had sunk beneath the waves off Tasmania's southwest coast, leaving nothing behind but these 10 crewmen bobbing in an orange rubber emergency life raft. And they'd just realised there had been no mayday call before she went down. As reality hit, one of the crewmen, Mick Power, vomited up his breakfast. Captain Crookshank, the weather-beaten old Scotsman, so fond of whisky, in fact, that he was two drinks in by 11am the morning of their departure, he knew if they ever got out of this, questions were going to be asked. As the Blythe Star was just touching the bottom of the ocean, he was saying, that's the ship gone. Next thing's the inquiry. But that's not what was on 18-year-old deckhand Mick Dolman's mind. They didn't even know where, where I was at that time. They hadn't heard from me. They didn't know the ship had sunk or it had disappeared. He realised that his new love, Joni, might never even know what happened to him. I remember in the life raft thinking that's her birthday while I was uh, paddling for my life. They were having a cake fight with cream in their hair and all sorts of things. And Here we were having the best time and not realising that was going on with him. As far as the whole world knew, 
they were happily steaming their way up the coast of Tasmania with their load of fertiliser and beer, bound for King Island. I didn't get to know the crew like you would on a normal ship. Oh, sorry, on a ship that wasn't going to sink on you. We were basically thrown straight into survival with very little warning. So you never really got to know each other as shipmates. We got to know each other as survivors. The men started speculating about what had gone wrong. Had the cargo moved below deck somehow? Was there too much cargo on deck? What Mick didn't know was that the Blythe Star had almost rolled three months earlier. It was suggested the deck cargo never be loaded to the weight it was when he climbed aboard. But an inquiry would later find that the Transport Commission never got around to putting that in the ship's instructions. And then there were those locking bars to keep the hatches closed in case she ever rolled, packed safely away in storage in Melbourne so they could squeeze an extra few tonne of cargo aboard, which meant that when she did start to go over, the water just flooded in. As the hours wore on, their situation sinking in, the cold crept into their bones. I've never been so cold in my life, anywhere in my life, than I was in that life raft. There's nothing you can do about it. And the best you got was squeezing up to each other to transfer the body warmth. I had a pair of jobs, that was it. Nobody had su- sufficient warm, dry clothes. You just were constantly wet. The crew shared around the few clothes they had. Even though we had the, got the news that no beta had gone off and what have you, we accepted that there will be a few days before they realise that we're not on schedule. So we just said, well, let's, um, let's plan for the worst. The cook, Al Simpson, took command of the life raft rations. Only 72 hours worth, packed away years ago. They were pretty grim. We had um, supposed to be a protein biscuit of some sort and uh, some glucose powder and cans of water. So that was rations straight away. We thought we'll do that just in case. He laid it out. Everyone gets one egg cup full of water a day, more on the days they could collect rain, and a bit of the glucose powder they could pour into their hands and lick from their palms, and a couple of eight-year-old dry, cardboardy biscuits... What was the taste of all of that like? Pretty ordinary. Yeah, it wasn't much shop at all and um, you wouldn't need it if you didn't have to. Mick Power, a tough fellow from Newcastle who kind of looked like a 70s rock star, handlebar moustache and wavy dark shoulder-length hair, retched as he tried to get the biscuits down. He and Taz Leary, who'd got the life raft free, just couldn't stomach them. And all the rations, everything they had to survive, was packed up in a cardboard box. Which lasted about 10 minutes. As soon as the water got into the raft, and was constantly in water. So their supplies, including some sharp fishing hooks, some knives, were now just floating around their rubber raft. We dumped a lot of that stuff because we didn't want anything that's sharp and could... uh, destroy the raft. All the same, spirits were pretty high. They had just survived a shipwrecking after all. 
But then? The uh, second engineer put a bit of a damper on it. That second engineer, John Sloan, who Malcolm McCarroll recalled, had some more bad news. He told us then that if uh, he wasn't picked up within two or three days, he'd be in trouble because he he didn't forget, he virtually didn't have time to get these pills he had for his thyroid condition that were vital to him. Suddenly, there was a timer ticking on their rescue. They had a few days at most to be found. Or things were going to get really rough for John Sloan, whose medication was now at the bottom of the ocean. Sloan grew up in the tough years of the Great Depression. He was an engineer but always loved riding horses and farm life. He'd show his prize bulls at agricultural shows, parading them around the showground. On an oriental cruise ship, he met a 24-year-old called Joan, who was kind of from cattle royalty in Western Australia. They fell head over heels with their shared love of farming and were married just a few months later. And when the shipwrecked crew set up shifts paddling the life raft, he'd take the oar just like everyone else, falling back exhausted after but never complaining, sparing his shipmates his agony. You just get on, and you have to get on because the the circumstances are so dire that we're on borrowed time, quite frankly. The Sunday morning after the Blythe Star disappeared under the waves, they spied something jutting out of the water ahead. It was a hulking mass of rocks called Pedra Branca. And it set a chill in Malcolm McCarroll's heart. Pedro Blanco, it's the most bleakest, what can I say, the most desolate looking thing I've ever seen in all my life. It is. We look like we're going to get blown onto her. As wide as a footy field and a bit over twice as long, Pedro Branca rises sheer out of the ocean. Forget the Bermuda Triangle. This place was like a magnet for shipwrecks. Just months earlier, a Japanese fishing vessel had been destroyed there and 21 men died. Only one survived by clinging to a rock for 27 hours. It's not the sort of place you're going to pull up for a picnic. There's waves continually breaking on it, you know, and I don't know how high it'd be, roughly, I suppose, 100, 150 feet. I don't I'm not much of a judge for distance and that sort of thing, but it was... Pretty bleak. With muscles burning, they kept paddling, two at a time, to keep themselves and their precious raft free of the rocks. Every time Malcolm McCarroll put the paddle in the water, he'd say the name of one of his family or friends. Now 24 hours without medication, John Sloan was barely in a fit state to paddle. He, he went crook very quickly. They managed to skirt the deadly Pedra Branca rocks. But there was something worse coming. The weather. The howling winds of the roaring 40s, whipping up swells as high as a power pole. Imagine you're in a raft and there's no light. It's black. And the raft is being hammered, getting picked up by a wave, taken to the peak of the wave, and then smash back down into the trough of the wave and the two sides of the raft coming together 
and smashing into each other and individuals were just getting headbutted and thrown into each other's space because we had no way to secure ourselves in the raft and it was horrific and in addition to doing that you got to bail water out at the same time and there was nothing you could do uh, to alleviate it and the biggest fear I had in those circumstances was the bottom of the raft coming apart and us falling through it to our death. How long would that last for? How long would you be doing that sort of being thrown into each other, trying to bail? You could get that for two or three days. The men were basically like socks in a washing machine. Only socks don't have bones to break. Did you feel inconsequential in the face of nature? I was mindful of nature and that nature's ability to kill me. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that um, it ain't gonna happen. It certainly won't happen with my assistance. I will do anything and everything to save my life and my fellow seafarers. No, I was never going to give up. I was never going to lie down and let it happen. As the days rolled on, the men's existence shrank to rolling waves, a grey horizon, and this small circle of rubber that was their lifeline. The only time we had was day and night. Our whole existence was about time and saving our life. If it wasn't bad weather, it would be something else. If it wasn't the wind and the current blowing us away to Bilio, it'd be something else. It was, it was never a dull moment, quite frankly. Something I can't stop thinking about is what if on day one of a new job, I was thrown into an extreme survival situation with my new colleagues? People I don't know. People I might not necessarily warm to. Who I now couldn't escape. Being literally thrown together. In this tiny raft packed full of men, Captain Crookshank became almost semi-comatose unable to help paddle for three days. He sat, hunched over and silent. And some of the crew were pretty riled at this. He was their captain, their leader, and they'd never needed one more. He was a disappointing person. And when I asked him in the raft, did you get a mayday out? I'm 18. He's the captain. What was your reaction when he said no? Absolutely surprised. And probably a bit angry, actually. Because he wasn't on the bridge. And had he been on the bridge, there's every chance he could have got a mayday away. If we'd had a mayday go off, or had got a message off before we sunk, we would have all got off and out. Even after months of trying to find out everything I can about this ship and her crew, Captain George Crookshank still feels like something of an enigma to me. He'd first hit the decks of a ship as a 17-year-old, not dissimilar to Mick. It can be dangerous and can be good. Is the sea a friend of yours? Oh, no. Who would say that? It's my life, that's all. 
And now, as a seasoned captain, he ultimately was responsible for getting the Blythe Star, her cargo and crew, safely to King Island. But instead of overseeing the loading of cargo, making sure it was secure and the ship stable, he was fussing over new stationery in his cabin. Some swear he was three sheets to the wind when the ship sailed. Others reckoned he'd only had a few. Everyone agrees he wasn't on the bridge as he should have been when the ship started her death roll. But some are sure they heard him say he was in his cabin having a cup of tea. Or maybe it was water. Either way, a long shot from scrambling to get a mayday signal away. And then, after the Blythe Star went down, Captain Crookshank seems to have just fallen apart. Captain Crookshank had failed to live up to the standards expected of a qualified master. He had failed to take adequate responsibility for the stability of his ship, had failed to send out distress signals when the ship got into trouble, and totally failed to assume command when it became necessary to abandon ship. There's no doubt he loved a drink, and that he didn't oversee as the ship was loaded up to a fatal level. But I do wonder, after the ship went down... Maybe he was just a man who wasn't up to the moment. Disappointing, maybe, but also just human. Do any of us really know who we'd be in that situation? Maybe, like Crookshank, we'd forever be judged badly for how we behaved in the worst moments of our lives. Disasters don't follow any rule books. We've got a brain that can act in some very strange ways. Dr Nicole Anderson specialises in expedition and wilderness medicine and understanding what extreme environments do to a person, as well as working in some pretty wild situations herself. It's one of those things that unless you're in that situation at the time, uh, it's going to be very hard to make a judgement. We just don't know what these people were going through. I drove an hour to meet her. I wanted to find out more about what the men were going through and why, when some defined themselves by their resilience, others really struggled. People may well be familiar with what we call the fight, flight and freeze. What your body is trying to do is recognise what's in the environment that's a dangerous thing and then prepare to get out of it to a place of safety. What happens in a situation like this where there actually is no safety to be had? It becomes a chronic stress response. Once you combine acute becoming chronic stress response plus hypothermia plus dehydration, you're starting to fight a losing battle. What's happening to your body? Oh, it's, it's awful. When people are cold, your peripheral circulation shuts down. In non-doctor speak, the blood rushes from your extremities, like hands and feet, into your torso and head. The body doesn't expect to be this cold for that long, but the physical response is to try and keep blood going to the heart, to the lungs, to the brain. However, it can come with some very bad side effects. Basically, all this extra blood flowing to your core overloads the kidneys, which are then like, evacuate, evacuate, and start to release the extra fluid as urine. And it's called a cold diuresis. You literally pee. You can pee out lots. So people who are suffering from prolonged exposure to cold and are becoming hypothermic will also become dehydrated. So this is a double whammy on this poor brain, which is already suffering from just stress. It can certainly start a slower deterioration in mental capacity. 
In the total absence of leadership from Captain Crookshank, first mate Ken Jones stepped in to fill the breach. He climbed into the raft after escaping out of his cabin um, from potential death and just led, just took the leadership, instilled confidence in us. He was a natural leader, absolute natural leader. Originally from Liverpool in England, Ken cut quite a figure in his seaman's uniform. To be honest, forget John Sloan's romantic cruise. Ken sounds like a bit of a heartbreaker. Reading some of his old letters, I've got to admit, I can see why everyone fell in love with him. My darling Fran, we're just getting ready to set sail, but have a few minutes. Thought I'd get one up on you. I love you, miss you already, as if you were miles away. I've got that empty feeling again, and if I didn't love you so much, I'd say it was a horrible feeling. But really, it's just a part of having you. Tell me you're not a little in love after hearing that. Anyway, Ken became the glue that kept the crew together. As John Sloan deteriorated in front of his shipmates' eyes, Ken gave them hope. Wet, cold, desperately unhappy because we have to keep bailing water out of the braft, beshevelled and cuddling up to each other. During those days when you were at sea in the life raft, was there any kind of structure in the day at all? Well, yes. We always made sure that the raft was clean. It was everybody's responsibility. And, of course, we always had lookouts to keep looking for any possible search or rescue vessels, all to no avail. When we started drifting south to Macquarie Island and further afield, that wasn't nice because there was no birds, couldn't see a seagull anywhere, and that's a sure sign that you're a fair way from land. It was now Tuesday, and you know how pruney your fingers get after an hour-long bath? Well, just imagine the state of the skin that had been permanently wet in salt water sloshing around the raft for four days. I was pretty crusty and uh, uncomfortable. The lack of water or food were taking their toll. They'd sleep 10 to 12 hours a day, their bodies running on empty. The captain was still in a state of almost semi-coma, but the men refused to give voice to the deepest fears that hid in the night. Instead, they told each other about what they were going home to. We used to have good conversations and everybody talked about their family. I spoke about my uh, new girlfriend and here I am stuck in a life raft with ugly blokes and um, I've just met the most beautiful woman in the world. What, what, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> anyway, so it, there was a bit of humour, a bit of joke here and there, but you're never far away from the serious things. Thursday the 18th dawned over the raft, high winds tearing at the orange canopy. The soggy, frozen men started to find signs of frostbite on their hands and feet. The chief engineer, John Sloan, into his sixth day without medication, no longer knew what was going on around him. Even though his water rations had been increased in a desperate effort to keep him alive, his body shook constantly as he mumbled to himself, seemingly running through his life story. 
18-year-old Mick Dolman had never sat next to a dying man before. He just became super quiet, didn't talk. You could, you could tell he wasn't well. As night crept over them, John Sloan grew quiet. The next morning, in the dim half-light that precedes dawn, Mick realised that Sloan was deathly still. Ken Jones checked his pulse. Nothing. I, I, I knew the bloke for two or three days, but he was a shipmate. And I, I mourned for him. I, I mourned for his family. I didn't even know how many kids or wife or whatever, but he didn't deserve to die on this raft. It was confronting, um, but you grow very quickly. You become a bit hardened about your environment and what you've got to do. As daylight seeped into the corners, the men covered him as best they could with some plastic from the raft's floor and discussed what they should do. We came to the conclusion that we'll keep him uh, on board in the hope that there'll be a rescue in due course. As the hours wore on, the men sat there, trying to keep themselves upright, their shipmate's body inescapably close. After 12 hours, they realised their rescue might not be coming. We had to give him a seafarer's burial. I took his socks and um, I said, that, uh, I'm sure he would not begrudge me his socks and uh, everybody was, uh, was fine. Captain said some nice words. He was, you've been a good seafarer. You've been a good shipmate. So we slipped him over the side. We had to lift his body up and take him to the side of the raft and um, and, and then let him let him go. I'd never seen a dead person in my life. I never buried a dead person in my life. And um, that was our first casualty. We hardly spoke. And it knocked us all over because the same could happen to any one of us in this unknown event that we're in. It took a long time to get uh, functioning normally if you call getting around in a life raft normal. Did it change how you were thinking about what you were going through? It made me... It made me think that I could be a better person. If I can get out of this, basically unscathed, I can do anything. I can be anything I want. But... I've got to make sure that I'm the man that can do it. The death of John was something of a turning point for the men. The combined pressure of the physical and psychological stress and dehydration and exposure and now loss put them right on the edge. One night, all of us had the same madness. I don't know what it was, what it is, but we had 
tins of water, our last water, and we opened all the tins and drank all the water, all the water, none, none left. We all thought that there was a, a, a crew, a Norwegian vessel's crew in the raft, and we're all drinking beer. And every one of us had the same imagination or the same event. When was it like you were all in the pub? Like, were you laughing and joking? Like, what, what actually happened? Exactly like that. We were sitting in the raft and we're at, we're at sea and um, it was just like dementia of some sort. You know, we just laughed and drank until we ran out of water or beer or whatever we th- thought it was and then fell asleep. The next morning, we said to everybody, what the hell went on here? What was that realisation like the next day that you'd drunk all your water? Oh, we're all in shock, actually. And all feeling somewhat guilty, and yet we're, we're all party to it. It was just crazy. Nine men in a raft with no water. Shit just got real on a whole other level. I don't know what it was, why we did it. It seems to me to be almost a sense of presence effect. People whose brains are not working very well, particularly in the context of a cold environment, dehydration adding to the stress, and where there was a lack of sensory input because they're in a raft, it's dark. Their brains are trying to make sense of this situation. Our survival expert, Dr Nicole Anderson, says this kind of delusion isn't unheard of when someone's pushed right to the edge, both physically and mentally. And so when you deprive people of sensory input, your brain will make up things. There's a lot of literature that deals with people seeing people, hearing people, feeling people called the sensed presence. And it's very common in people who are in extreme and unusual environments who are pushed to physical extremes. To have a moral injury happen with somebody dying, again, it's another body and mind blow. So it's no surprise that the group of them then suffered what appeared to be a delusional incident. By Saturday the 20th, the men had been blown right around the southern tip of Tasmania, now hundreds of k's from where they started. Mick had got to know these men who had been strangers just seven days before in a way few people ever get to know one another. And the nine remaining men were in a very real race. They were one man down and all at the end of endurance. And after more than a week at sea, apparently on their own. In all the time we were in the raft, we seen no sign of a search and rescue vessel, no sign of a plane. I think we all come to the conclusion that we got to save ourselves. Nobody's going to come to get us. Uh, where the hell was the search party? This is season two of ABC's Expanse podcast, From the Dead, hosted by me, Pia Wursu, on the Stony Creek Nation. My producer and sound engineer on Awabakal land is wonderful Grant Walter. Executive producer is Blythe Moore. Senior producer, also me. With thanks to Liz Gwynn and Helen Shield for additional production and research. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hey, I'm Sana Kadar and I host a podcast called All in the Mind. And if you've ever wondered how our brains work or why people behave the way they do, you'll love All in the Mind. It's a psychology podcast that explores everything from mental health to artificial intelligence with topics like how our brains interpret fantasy novels, what psychological techniques scammers use, and what it's like living with bipolar disorder. Find All in the Mind on the ABC Listen app.